Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 23 through 28. If you're using one of the blue uh, Bibles in the chairs, you will find these verses on page 1008. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. But before we hear the reading of God's Word, let me pray and ask for God's blessing upon the ministry of His Word here this morning. Father, we come before You humbly asking for your grace, that you would remember your promise that your word not return to you void. But Father, may you cause it to bring forth in our lives and in our city an abundant fruit of righteousness to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. This is the very word of God. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That is the reading of God's word. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has been laboring to show the people of God, to to show these Hebrews who were being tempted to to leave the faith. He's been laboring to show them that Jesus Christ is the only Redeemer, that He is the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. He is the High Priest who has offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but the the high priest who has offered his own blood once and for all time as the sacrifice for sin, so that all who believe in him might receive perfected consciences. They might have a perfect salvation, a, a perfect remission of sins, a perfect reconciliation with their Father in heaven, a salvation that is available nowhere else. And it is because of the unique standing of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer that he pleads with the Hebrews not to throw away their confidence. We we see this in, in chapter 10. Look with me there at the end of chapter 10. He is pleading with them. He says, therefore, do not, verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promise. He's saying much the same thing that Paul said to the Colossians. He is is calling on them not to be moved from the hope of the gospel that they have believed. He, He is calling on them to stand firm in the faith. And as an encouragement to that end, he is providing with them here in chapter 11 a a list of saints who walked in the footsteps of faith. A a list of saints whose life was defined by faith. And we have been looking at those pictures for the last few weeks. Those, Those pictures of faith in 
action. Last Sunday, we, we saw four snapshots of faith taken from the life of the patriarchs and the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And in this text before us here this morning, we have four more pictures of faith and action, this time taken from the life of Moses. And these are presented before you as an encouragement, as a call to faithfulness, as a call to walk in the footsteps of faith. Now you'll be relieved to know we're not going to look at all four of these this morning. We're not, we don't have time to, to look at all four pictures that are before us this morning, but we're going to begin with the first picture, which is actually not a picture of Moses' faith, but is actually a picture of the faith of his parents. Notice what the author writes. He says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now you remember the story. The, the king's edict refers to Pharaoh's command, the, the command that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 1, the command that every son born to a Hebrew family was to be cast into the Nile River. Exposure by drowning. You remember that, that the Israelites were in Egypt as guests originally. Joseph, whose story we heard last Sunday, had brought his family to Egypt to, to wait out the famine, to, to live there as guests of the king. But we read in Exodus chapter 1 that a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now it's unlikely that this pharaoh didn't know Joseph's name or didn't know Joseph's story. Most likely, he didn't know Joseph as a friend. He didn't know Joseph as an ally. We, we know from other sources that there was a regime change about this time in Egypt. And so it is possible that the, the Pharaoh who is said not to have known Joseph is actually the Pharaoh who overthrew the line of Pharaohs that Joseph had served. And therefore, this new pharaoh considered Joseph to be a, a friend of the former dynasty, and thus, by default, not a friend of his. But whatever the exact historical situation, we know that this new pharaoh saw the ever-growing nation of Israel that was living within his borders. He, he saw this people as a threat. He saw them as a threat that needed to be neutralized. And so first, he, he subjected them to forced labor. He, he put them to work, an unpleasant work at that. We, we read in Exodus chapter 1 that, that it didn't work. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So he subjected them to forced labor, but they continued to prosper. They, they continued to, to multiply. And so next, he enslaved them. He went beyond forced labor to actual slavery, but this didn't work either. And so eventually he decided that they just needed to be killed off. And at first he commanded the Hebrew midwives to do it. The, the women who served the Hebrew families as midwives, he, he commanded them to, to kill a baby boy every time it was born. But the Hebrew midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and they did not obey the command. And so, finally, Pharaoh just simply called open hunting season on all Hebrew boys. He, he called on anyone and everyone to take Hebrew boys and to throw them into the river. 
In other words, parents were called upon to kill their own children. Parents were were called upon to to kill their own sons. And if the parents wouldn't do it, the, the neighbors were supposed to do it. All to make sure that Pharaoh's wrath did not come down. Because while the text doesn't say it, it seems likely that the punishment that Pharaoh threatened would have been death. Kill your baby boys or face death yourself. That was the edict. That was the edict coming down from Pharaoh's throne. That is the edict that we're told Moses' parents did not fear. They did not fear the edict, and therefore they hid the baby Moses for three months. If you've ever been around a newborn, it's not hard to figure out why they hid him for three months. After that, it becomes kind of hard to, to hide a child. They become too mobile. They become too vocal to remain hidden. And so while the author doesn't mention it, you may remember how the story unfolds. After that point, when they could no longer keep Moses hidden, they, they took additional steps to preserve his life. They could no longer keep him hidden, so they they wove together a basket and they covered it with with tar so that it would be waterproof. And they placed Moses in it and they placed that basket in the Nile River. Now when I was a kid, I used to think that was a pretty strange thing to do. I thought that was a a pretty strange way to try to protect a child. How is a child going to survive in a basket on the river? But it now seems clear to me that Moses' parents knew what they were doing. It is almost certain that they placed him in the river intending him to be found. Intending him to be found by an Egyptian woman who could protect his life. I doubt they knew or or even suspected that he would be found by Pharaoh's daughter. But they put him where he could be found. And they trusted that the Egyptian woman who found him would have compassion on him and would claim him as their own. And if that seems strange to you, you simply have to remember that it is one thing to order the murder of a theoretical baby. It is quite another thing to murder a baby you have seen with your own eyes. This is one of the reasons that our crisis pregnancy centers need ultrasound machines. They want ultrasound machines so that mothers can see their own children, even if just on a screen. Because when they have seen their child, when they've seen the baby, the horror of what it is to kill that baby becomes all the more apparent. That's the nature of humanity. And it is that nature of humanity that Moses' parents were depending on. They were depending that when this woman found the child, she would see him as a child, and she would have compassion on him, and she would take him into her own house. And of course, that's exactly what happened. When Pharaoh's daughter saw the baby Moses, she had compassion on him, and she claimed him as his own. But what was it that enabled Moses' parents to have such faith? What is it that enabled them to defy the Pharaoh's command in this way? The author gives us two reasons. First, he says that that Moses' parents were able to protect the baby Moses because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now again, that's one of those phrases that's always seemed strange to me. 
Are we supposed to infer that they wouldn't have protected him if he was ugly? Are we supposed to infer that if he hadn't been such a cute little baby that that they would have just let him die? I don't think that's at all what we are meant to see. Rather, we are supposed to understand that Moses' beauty was something other than, or at least more than, merely physical. We know this because when Stephen mentions Moses' beauty in his speech in Acts chapter 7, he, he actually says it this way. He says that Moses was not only beautiful, but that he was beautiful in the sight of God. His beauty was in the sight of God. And when you couple that here with the, with the mention of Moses' parents' faith, the idea seems to be that his parents saw in him one who was especially favored by God. I would even suggest to you that they saw in him the hope of the nation. They saw in him the one who they hoped would be God's instrument of redemption. The people of Israel had been enslaved for years And they had been crying out to God for deliverance. And I believe that Moses' parents saw in their baby boy, they saw in this beautiful one, the one whom God had ordained to rescue them from their bondage. He was beautiful in that he was God's chosen instrument of redemption. We use the same sort of language when we we speak of one who comes to our aid in a time of desperate need as a sight for sore eyes. Are you not a sight for sore eyes that you you would come to my help? That's what Moses' parents saw, a sight for sore eyes. They saw a beautiful one. They saw one whom God had provided for their redemption. And because they saw his beauty in the sight of God, they were able to defy the king's edict. There's also a second reason here, and that is their lack of fear. Not only did they see the beauty of Moses, but they also saw, or they also lacked fear. They did not fear what the king could do to them. They were were not afraid of the potential consequences of of disobedience. They, They were not afraid of the death penalty that could come upon them. That might mean that that they didn't think that, that Moses would actually, that the, that the Pharaoh would actually be able to kill them, that God would protect them. Or it might mean that they believed that even if God killed them, or even if that Pharaoh killed them, that God would protect them. It's like what Peter says to the Christians in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, who is there to, to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you, if you are for God, if you devote yourself to him as a living sacrifice, no harm can come upon you. But then he immediately goes on to say, they might cause you to suffer. They might even take your life. But they can't harm you. That's the faith that Moses' parents had. They they did not fear the king. Rather, they feared the Lord. And they knew that his promises extended even beyond physical death. They knew, as we saw a few weeks ago, that physical death would not be the end of their hope. And so, because they had a faith that allowed them to cling to a hope that transcended even death, and because they knew that that Moses was the beautiful child given them by God, because these two pieces came together, they were able to defy the king's edict and protect their son. That's faith 
in action. But how are we to emulate such faith? What is it that that we are supposed to do in imitation of Moses' parents? How do we live out this faith? I believe we can say it this way. The faith we are called to is a faith that clings to God's Redeemer, even in the face of every threat. You see, Jesus is our beautiful one. Jesus is our sight for sore eyes. He is the one who came to deliver us. He came to to give his life as the ransom for our own. He is the one who came to lead us out of this present evil age. In him, we have redemption, not just redemption from the the slavery of, of this life, but in him, we have redemption from our sins. We have freedom even from the very wrath of God. We were dead in our sins, subject to his judgment. And yet now in Christ, we have been saved by grace. He is our Redeemer. He is our beautiful one. And when we look to the faith of Moses' parents, we see that like them, we must cling to the beautiful one, regardless of the costs. And there will be costs. It is unlikely that we will face death for the sake of Jesus' name, as as Moses' parents did. Though there are many today who do, and there are many who have throughout the centuries. It's maybe more likely that we will face the lesser persecutions that the Hebrews were, were facing. The author tells us that they had not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, but some of them had been thrown in prison and others had had their property plundered. These seem like more likely consequences at this time and in our present context. We've seen Christian business owners put out of business and we've seen others who have lost their jobs. There there are real material consequences for standing with Jesus. But if you're like me, even these seem like remote possibilities, at least at present. Nevertheless, even if your job is not at risk, even if your business is not being threatened, there will be costs to standing with Jesus. There there will be consequences. When allegiance to King Jesus requires you to stand against injustice and oppression and discrimination in your city, you may be regarded as an enemy. Those who speak against injustice, those who who speak against oppression, those who stand with the, the marginalized are often considered enemies by those in power. They are often considered disloyal to the state. And followers of Jesus must be prepared to endure that reproach. We must be prepared to be regarded as enemies of our country for the sake of standing with Jesus, if it comes to that. On the other hand, when allegiance to King Jesus requires us to to stand against the sexual immorality and, and the murder of unborn babies, Again, you may be regarded as an enemy, but for different reasons. Those who speak against immorality of any kind are are often considered unloving and and narrow-minded bigots. Who do you think you are to impose your morality on another person? That's the question that will come. 
And again, followers of Jesus must be prepared to endure such slander. Whether it comes from the public, whether it comes from our neighbors, whether it comes from our friends and our family. We must be prepared to stand with Jesus even against such reproach. And when allegiance to King Jesus and His kingdom requires you to even confront your brother in his sin because he's living out of accord with the gospel the way that that Paul had to confront Peter. When you are called on to go after the one who has strayed, you may be regarded as mean-spirited, as anti-gospel, as not understanding grace. Even those in the church may slander you. You'll be labeled a fundamentalist and a fanatic. And again, Jesus' disciples must be prepared to endure such slander. And I could go on. Surely you can imagine your own scenarios. You can imagine your own consequences. We know that there will be consequences. If we stand with King Jesus, if we pledge our allegiance to His kingdom, we will be regarded as enemies by some. And they will oppose us by whatever means are at their disposal. And in the face of such opposition, we must be prepared to cling to the crucified. We must be prepared to cling to our Savior because that is what faith does. Like Moses' parents, faith clings to the Redeemer in the face of any and all costs. But how? How can we develop such faith? How can we nurture such faith? How is faith able to cling to Christ regardless of the consequences? We've heard the answer again and again for the past few weeks. Faith is able to cling to Christ because faith knows Christ to be the risen one. The one who has conquered death. And because he now sits at the right hand of the Father, Paul can say, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or or nakedness or sword, shall any of these things separate us from the love of God in Christ? And the answer comes back, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not because we are conquerors ourselves, but because we stand with the victorious one. We stand with the one who has conquered. We stand with the one who has defeated death. And because he has defeated death, Paul can say, Therefore, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the assurance of faith. Our Lord is a risen Lord. And because He is a risen Lord, we can stand with Him no matter what threats the world brings against us. Because as Jesus Himself said, all they can do is kill the body. All they can do is take your stuff. All they can do is cause you to suffer for a moment. But they cannot touch your soul. 
And God has provided for you a city. He has prepared for you an inheritance that is indestructible, undefiled, and unfading. And that inheritance is being kept for you in heaven by God's power. They can't touch it. And because they can't touch it, your eternal good is secure. And so if in the the trials and the tribulations of this life you find yourself blinded to the beauty of Christ and you find yourself fearing the king's edict, if you find yourself tempted to distance yourself from him because you're not sure what the world is going to do to you, then ask God to open the eyes of your heart that you might see Jesus more clearly, that you might see him in all his beauty. God gave Moses' parents eyes to see the beauty of the Chosen One, the Chosen Redeemer. And because they saw His beauty, they were able to walk in the footsteps of faith even when it meant defying the King's edict. And He will do the same for each of us if only we will ask. Therefore, let us ask. Let us ask Him to give us eyes to see. Let us ask Him to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the beauty of our Savior. And seeing His beauty, we might be strengthened to stand against all the edicts of the King. Because if we do, if we are unmoved from the hope of the Gospel, if we endure we will receive all that has been promised. And because our inheritance is sure, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us believe it together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And we pray now that you would, by that grace, give us eyes to see Jesus, to see his beauty. And seeing his beauty... Be strengthened to walk in the footsteps of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.